You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Antonio. Appreciate it. And uh, it is awesome this morning to turn from the resurrection power of Jesus that we celebrated last week in Easter Sunday, the culmination of a wonderful week, Holy Week, and the events surrounding that week. I hope that you were as blessed as myself, our family was. And we turn now to the liberating power of Jesus in this story that you just, that you just heard read in Mark chapter 5. This series in Mark's gospel that we have been going through is called Jesus the Servant King. And his, his power, his, his, his power and authority is on display, particularly in this section of Mark's gospel that we're in. So running from chapter 4, verse 35, through chapter 5, verse 43, we see four mighty acts, essentially, that demonstrate his powerful authority over nature, the calming of the storm, our last time together, uh, demons, as we'll see today, disease, and death. 
his mighty acts on display. The question, though, at the end of that, that story of the calming of the sea is, who is this <laughs> that even the winds and the waves obey him? And the answer comes from a very unlikely source. These demons who declare Jesus the Son of God most high. <laughs> from Jesus bringing calm to the raging wind and raging waves to bringing calm to the raging of a man possessed by a whole army of demons. That's where, that's where we find ourselves this morning. So would you join me in a word of prayer as we dive into his word this morning? God of our Lord Jesus Christ, grant the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. The same power you demonstrated in raising Jesus Christ from the dead and seating him at your right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. We praise you for placing everything under Christ's feet and appointing him as head over the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You know, when it comes to even a text like this and looking at things related to the, to the demonic, it is easy to fall into one of two extremes. I think that it was captured very well in the beginning, the preface to C.S. Lewis's masterful work, The Screwtape Letters, in which he describes these two errors. He writes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, that is the human race, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. These two dangers, on the one hand, ignoring the demonic, perhaps even doubting their existence altogether in this post-enlightenment time that we find ourselves. On the other hand, seeing, how do we put it, a, a, a demon under every rock. There are certain streams even within Christianity where that has been elevated, perhaps to an excess. And certainly popular film and TV and other such things uh, don't make it any easier. There can sometimes be an unhealthy obsession with things related to the demonic. In seeking answers to this question or of a, a place in between these positions, first of all, we realize that Jesus believed that demons were real. That should settle that matter, first and foremost. But in the story of Jesus' encounter with the demon-possessed man here in Mark 5, 1 through 20, we are awestruck by his irresistible power over spiritual evil, evil spiritual forces, his complete compassion upon this man who had been enslaved, those who fall victim his complete compassion and his magnificent mercy shown to those he seeks out. 
So in our time together this morning, I would like to do just that, beginning by exploring the story found here in Mark 5, 1 through 20, a story that contains a desperate situation, a dramatic liberation, a disturbed reaction, and a devoted proclamation. And at the end, what I'd love to do is to then look at lessons, four lessons for us, in the form of takeaways as well, lessons that center on Jesus, the demons, the community, and this restored man. That's kind of a road map. If you are the type that likes to have a road map of where we're going, there you go. Those are, <laughs> I feel like those are less, less utilized on road trips these days, but uh, sometimes it's good to have a good old-fashioned map. So we begin then in the story here with this desperate situation, this setting and actually, so many of the details in the story give us the sense that these are the accounts of eyewitnesses. A lot of vivid details in the story. Jesus crosses over into what is Gentile territory, the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, to a small town by the sea, the sea called Gerasa. This is like, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to forgive me because there's some military references in this passage too, but this is, just think about Jesus in the boat. This is like an, an amphibious assault on enemy territory. An amphibious assault on enemy territory. I'll just, that's a bone for any of the Marines among us, by the way, as an army guy. <laughs> there he is confronted though by a demon-possessed man I believe whose desperate situation is described in seven ways. First, he lived in the tombs. These are tombs that were cut from rock or even natural caves. They were considered unclean by the pious Jew. And so it is clear that he was relegated to subhuman living conditions. And there, this drips, even this phrase drips with irony. Living among the tombs. Do you catch that? Living among the tombs. But this is no life. Second, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Attempts had been made, certainly. And he demonstrates superhuman strength. There are echoes of the previous passage in Mark about Jesus binding the strong man. Do you catch that? Third, he had often been chained hand and foot. Actually, these, some of these are very related to one another, but they had not only tried to chain his hands, but they had tried to bind, shackle his feet. This reminds me of something we had to do, especially for like high-profile detainees in the army. They would not only be, uh, you know, cuffed, but then also restrained around, around the, the, the ankles with a chain that ran the length of them as well. And this, these are the types of attempts that were made to try to protect the community. But look at the fourth the fourth way he is described here, his desperate situation is described, he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. So powerful that he was even able to snap these restraints. These are no mere flex cuffs or plastic type things. Fifth, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Again, he faced a hopeless situation where maybe even relatives had given up hope he was a danger to them and to others. And so sixth night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out. This is, we're given this image of him shrieking as he roams among 
the tombs in this, in this wild and desperate state. And seventh, and cut himself with stones. He is pictured as trying to destroy himself, a torn and bloodied mess by the time Jesus comes across him. Second, a dramatic liberation in verses 6 through 13. There are a series of four verbs that kind of just hit us right in the face as we come across this verse. He saw Jesus from a distance, ran to him, fell on his knees before him, and shouted at the top of his voice. Even this should be surprising to us as it reveals the, the inner conflict raging within this man. And even in this act, it is a recognition of Jesus' superior power in coming and kneeling before him. In what the demons shout, there are four strategies that come to the surface. The first is the shout of, what do you want with me? An attempt to try to disassociate themselves from Jesus. Second, Jesus, son of the most high God. This is an expression of a high view of Jesus They're fully aware of his divine origin. The spirits know exactly who he is. And the title Most High in Scripture underscores God's sovereignty over creation, including his sovereignty over supernatural beings. This is not a confession on the the part of the demons, but rather it is believed an attempt, according to the widespread assumption of the day, to gain mastery over Jesus by naming him. Jesus will have none of it. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The third strategy, in God's name. We might miss this at first glance when we read it, but the NASB highlights this too, and it says, or another way of saying it, I implore you by God. Now, it is as if the demons invoke the name of God to try to protect themselves from the Son of God. You catch that? This is also an attempt to try to control Jesus but to no avail. And the fourth strategy, don't torture me. This is ironic, of course, because of their torture, their utter torture of this man held in their grips. But it's also a highlighting of the eternal punishment that awaits them. Passages like 2 Peter 2, verse 4. Well, verses 8 through 13 then highlight, I believe, Jesus' power over demons in in several in several ways. He summons the demons to come out of the man without needing their name. So remember I alluded to that more traditional method of exorcism, the thought that you almost needed the name in order to perform the incantation needed to drive out a demon. Jesus does not need that. When he asks for the name, it is not an attempt to try to gain control over the demons, but to reveal even to the listeners around the extent of the man's oppression to which the demons respond, legion, right? Legion, a military term for the largest unit of soldiers in the Roman army. It would be like saying, I know this isn't the largest unit in the army, but it'd be like saying a whole brigade of demons oppressed this man. Jesus clearly is at war with an entire army of demons. And what's more, the narrative switches 
interestingly back and forth, but particularly verse 9, between the singular and the plural. It shows the demons using this man as a mouthpiece. The man fades into the background as Jesus does battle with this horde of demons. And they beg him repeatedly not to send them away. In Luke's telling of the story, Luke 8, verse 31, it says, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Again, a highlighting or foreshadowing of the fate that awaits all evil spiritual forces. Seeing a herd of pigs nearby, they begged Jesus to send them among the pigs. One thing that this does is it confirms, it reminds us that they were in what was considered Gentile territory. We'll see that word Decapolis later on in the text as well. And to the Jews, pigs were considered unclean. But what Jesus does is he grants permission. (laughs) The legion enters the pigs and they rush toward the lake and drown. Even in this act of granting permission, it highlights Jesus' powerful authority. And where the destruction of the pigs might be problematic to us today, maybe even grating to our modern ears for the first century Jew, think about this. Moving impure spirits from an impure man living among impure tombs to impure animals is quite fitting. Their aim had been to destroy the man. And so what they end up doing is destroying these pigs, another part of God's creation. This demonstrates that their ultimate purpose was to destroy this man who had been uniquely made in the image of God, but they couldn't do it. And so they destroy these pigs, either leaving themselves homeless in this situation, or there's, you know, there's debates, and you can get into the literature if you want, whether they remain, uh, remain homeless or are destroyed altogether. But the destructive power of the wind and the waves that now, that almost sank the disciples' boat in the story before, now gobbles up these pigs. What's important from Mark's perspective is the the immediate effectiveness of the command, the immediate effectiveness of Jesus' command. So look at the disturbed reaction that happens then in verses 14 to 17 when confronted with this dramatic liberation that has just taken place. Word spread quickly. Those who came to see what had happened experienced three proofs of this man's dramatic liberation. First of all, he's sitting there. Luke 8 adds, at his feet, (laughs) a picture of discipleship, right? He's sitting there, dressed. Again, Luke 8, 27 had highlighted his nakedness in the story. And here he is, dressed, clothed. And third proof, in his right mind. And so their reaction is twofold. First of all, they were afraid, verse 15. This is quite similar to the disciples after Jesus dramatically calmed the storm in chapter 4, verse 41. In fact, there are so many parallels between between these two stories. The man's transformation was so radical that it left the townspeople stunned and fearful. So not only were they afraid, but they began to plead with Jesus to leave their region altogether. They feared Jesus' power more than they had feared 
this demon-possessed man. And perhaps they feared even more financial disruption and cared more about the pigs than about this restored man. More interested in protecting their own interests than in seeing other people liberated and healed at the hands of Jesus. But the story is completely different for this man, this restored man. For in verses 18 to 20, we see a devoted proclamation. The spirits begged Jesus. The people of the region begged Jesus. And now the healed man begs Jesus, what? To be with him. We should hear in that, I think, echoes of Mark 3, 14. Uh, Jesus brought the disciples to be with him and then to send them out to do God's work. But Jesus instead commissions him powerfully in this way. Go home to your own people and tell them two things. How much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I looked right at mercy when I said mercy. (laughs) That's awesome. Hi, mercy. (laughs) How he has had mercy on you. That was a total squirrel moment, but that's okay. Jesus doesn't include this man in what's known as the messianic secret. We've seen that a couple, in a couple other instances in Mark's gospel, haven't we? Where he surprisingly tells people that have been liberated to, to keep quiet. But instead, what he does is he sends this man in what is more of a, more of a Gentile territory to be more open. There's less opportunity, I believe, for misunderstanding Jesus' ministry as political in nature. And so he sends this man as, as the first missionary to this region and sowing the seeds for what would eventually become even Paul's ministry later on. And this man, of course, is obedient to Jesus. He begins telling people in the Decapolis, this is a league of 10 mainly Greek cities that were predominantly Gentile. And he does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. That word for proclaim here is used regularly in Mark of preaching, preaching the gospel. And notice where Jesus had told him to declare what God had done for him. He attributes it to the work of Christ. Did you notice that? Jesus says, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And the man tells how much Jesus has done for him. To the reader of Mark, again, another clue of Jesus' identity as the unique son of God. Jesus' amazing power is made known among the Gentiles. As I mentioned, this lays the foundation for Gentile mission where Paul would preach after his conversion and is met with the amazement of the people. All the people were amazed. Church, I believe this this magnificent story points to at least four lessons. I'm sure many others. But one of the things I found myself doing was looking at kind of these four key characters. So so God first in Jesus, the, the demons, the community, that is the townspeople, and then this restored man. And so first, in Jesus the Son of the Most High God, the liberating power of the kingdom, the saving mercy of God, and the worldwide expansion of the gospel are made manifest. 
consider his power, his mercy, and his mission. His power, the superhuman strength of the man highlights the even greater power of Jesus to bind the strong man and to set the captives free. Even this act of running and falling to his knees before Jesus is an acknowledgement of his powerful authority. And we are reminded, even in the, the fate that awaits the demons, that all victory belongs to Christ. His mercy, Jesus takes the initiative. He goes across the lake to hostile territory. He searches out this man and the power of God's mercy and love that captures and transforms those who don't realize it exists, don't seek it out, and try to resist it when it comes is unbelievable. His power, his mercy, and his mission. I love Dexter Mabin writes in the South Asia Bible Commentary. This really captured my, my imagination. By entering a Gentile region, Jesus was crossing religious, cultural, political, and ethnic boundaries. He challenged all such boundaries, and his actions had far-reaching implications for individuals and their communities. And so considering his power, his mercy, his mission, Jesus still has the power and authority to deliver us from evil today, even in the most overwhelming and desperate of situations. Is Jesus seeking you out today in order to radically get a hold of your life? And this text reminds us that the mission of God is front and center. The mission of God today, as we are reminded too, is from everywhere to everywhere where, where we see the seeds that are being sown in this initial account today, those who are called to proclaim the gospel of God go from everywhere to everywhere. And there is a continued challenge for us to consider crossing every human-made boundary in order to see the pervasive gospel sown. Our heart here at EBF, I'm sure you've heard me say this, I will continue to say it. Our heart here at EBF is to see our church come to reflect more of the Evanston community around us and the heavenly community ahead of us. That's where we're going. Second lesson. Demons may aim to distort, deface, and destroy the image of God, but their power is no match for Jesus and their fate is sealed. Consider their aim their tactics, and their fate. First, their aim. Their aim, I think this passage highlights in a number of ways, is to distort, to deface, and yes, to even seek to destroy the image of God in humankind, to destroy his likeness among us. And the tactics among others, but particularly in this story, are social isolation, Super, get this man having superhuman strength and forcing him to engage in self-destruction. That is, seeking to deface the image of God by having him cut himself. But their fate is sealed. Matthew, there's a couple other clues to this in Matthew's account and then also, as I mentioned, in Luke's account. Matthew 8, verse 29, the demons say, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Mm. They know their fate is sealed. 
And then Luke 8, verse 31, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. We should be reminded of the account in Revelation 20 of where, the, of where Satan, the beast, evil spiritual forces are, are banished to face eternal punishment. Church, we are up against evil spiritual forces who oppose God, who seek to distort, to deface, and to destroy the image of God in our sisters and brothers. And how else do we see people and powers try to distort and destroy the image of God today? We may focus on doing battle against the unseen evil spiritual forces of the air, and that's not a bad thing necessarily. But it is if, if we fail to do the important work of naming, unmasking, and engaging the evil powers at work in systems, the evil power at work in institutions as well. Through Jesus, we are empowered to deliver others from the demons facing us today, not only that of possession, outright possession, but of corruption, of poverty, of marginalization, everywhere where evil rears its ugly head. We need to take them seriously, but not fear them. We should not be among those who, who see a demon under every rock, ready to pounce on the unsuspecting and innocent. For the exorcisms in Mark and elsewhere show Jesus as always victorious. The enemy defeated, often with just a single word. Third lesson. We could camp out on each of these for a long time, but kind of overview here. Third lesson. The community who had driven the man out reacted to his total deliverance with fear and ultimately resisted the true source of their salvation. Consider their resignation, their reaction, and their resistance. First, they were resigned to their situation. Attempts to bind this man to protect themselves from his violence proved futile. They drove him out to wander wildly in the hills and among the tombs. Perhaps an attitude that added cruelty to his situation. And second, their reaction, as we highlighted earlier in the story, to his total deliverance, not only did they fear Jesus' superior power, that they are confronted with before them, but they also feared further financial disruption. They feared what it could do to the bottom line. And third, their resistance to the source of salvation. Another example here, I believe, of what we saw in Mark 4, that of outsiders who, who see but do not truly see, who hear and do not truly hear. They end up chasing off the source, the true source of their salvation and their deliverance. I think these, the townspeople here and their, their being a focal point in the story should cause us to ask, who do we end up driving off, relegating like this demon-possessed man? Who ends up getting relegated to subhuman living conditions in our society today? How will we respond to such injustice? I think it's also a reminder that the reaction to our ministry may be similar to what Jesus faced. 
only a small number of those who are liberated will indeed rejoice and praise God. We can expect many to not tolerate our interference and want us to leave. Only a small number of those who witness such liberations will rejoice and praise God. Fourth lesson, Jesus sought out the man in the midst of his desperate situation, totally transformed him, and powerfully commissioned him to proclaim Christ's work and mercy. Consider his situation, his transformation, and his proclamation. He was in utter agony, torturing himself under the influence of these evil spiritual forces. As one commentary puts it, as storm-tossed by the demons as the disciples' boat had been. And at the same time, his desperate situation is a microcosm of all of creation. As creation groans, awaiting our final redemption, our final liberation. Church, in the New Testament, those who are demon-possessed are victims who should be viewed compassionately and liberated from oppression. They are never rebuked. They themselves are never told to repent. Consider his desperate situation and then his total transformation. Jesus shows that this man is of more value than 2,000 pigs. He meets Jesus' powerful mercy. He is restored to wholeness. He is made fully human once again with a family, with home, with a home, with a mission. No longer a beast to roam wildly or needing to be contained. He is totally transformed. Remember those proofs where he is sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And yes, consider his proclamation. People who are dramatically liberated by Jesus must be willing to tell the story of what he has done. As, as Psalm 118 reminded us on Palm Sunday, to declare his mighty deeds. Think about the unique opportunity to declare among those who could not deny his former plight or ignore his dramatic change from his, from his encounter with Christ. Think about that. I believe this applies powerfully to us whose lives Jesus has transformed. And so as a way to even see this lived out, last week, one of the things we mentioned was a desire to encourage our church with more testimonies of what God has done and how he has shown mercy. I'd like to invite up Wedham to join us, to join me up here in telling his story of what God has done for him and of how he has had mercy on him. Wedham, thank you for Thank you for joining me up here. Come on over, have a seat. It takes a lot of, uh, a lot of courage to come up here. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Oh, man. It feels good to sit down a little bit, actually. That's good. <laughs> well, welcome. Would you mind introducing yourself, your family, and maybe even uh, how long you've been at EBF? All right, thanks. Um, so my name is Wedam Inyaba, and um, my wife just stepped out with, with Ezekiel, but... Um, That's about how it goes, right? <laughs> Life with an infant. <laughs> right. Um, 
So her name is Natasha, and um, Ezekiel is seven months old. Uh, we moved here from Peoria um, about seven months ago um, and started attending EBF um, in November of last year. Uh, we've enjoyed our, our, our fellowship here so far. So. Awesome. I thought we'd get a whoop out of uh, Brittany over there with Peoria. Yay! Well, Germantown Hills, I'm sorry. Close, close enough? Anyway. Well, we're delighted to have you here. I'd love to hear, we'd all love to hear a little bit about your background, especially as it relates to faith. Yeah. Um, so, I guess my story is not different from what um, most of you have been through. Or I, I believe most of you were born into, into the faith. Um, so I was born into the Methodist faith and um, I mean, baptized at birth, but confirmed when I, I was a sophomore in college. But I just kind of went through the motions re without really taking, owning the faith. Um, and, and some of the things that I did was, um, you know, treating the church as a social club where I can go and uh, safely mingle with girls uh, without having issues with my parents. <laughs> um, Was that on there? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing fine. Okay. Yeah, so um, another thing was I, I, I figured I could learn to play a musical instrument by going to church. So I had weird reasons for going to church um, and not really to go serve him. Mm. Um, but this went on to the point that when I got to college, um, I would go to Sunday service, but I wasn't really involved. Um, I would just go and um, put my Bible away after, after service. Um, so um, one leader of the Christian ministries on campus, and by the way, I did my undergrad in Ghana, West Africa. That's where we originally from. Um, so this fellow invited me to a prayer meeting, and in my mind, I was thinking, how is he able to combine um, ministry or, you know, engaging in Christian stuff and, and his ac academics? And so what I did, I actually did not honor his invitation. Um, my goal was to study and, you know, get that top GPA and whatnot. But and, and in the college that I attended, they would publish um, GPAs um, publicly. Um, on a notice board, and so I... Wait, for everyone? Like, for everybody, yes. <laughs> um, they don't do that in Northwestern, do they? Just check. Okay. So a few I, prominent head, you know, no. <laughs> wow, so you're just like looking down, oh, there's your mic. Yeah, so I, I checked, and I figured he was the top of his class. Um, and so that spoke volumes to me, and I, I said to myself, I'm going to try his way. I'm going to get involved. Again, another uh, weak thought, right? I'm just going to do it so God would help me get that mm. strong GPA. Um, so that kind of went on until finally um, I went on, uh, on, on a student evangelism um, trip. And on that trip, um, I think that was in 2009, on that trip, um, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and things turned around for me. Um, I, I began really um, journeying to, to know God's word deeply, and I, I started um, following him truly, and not just for what he, he, he can do for me. 
Um, but my faith grew even more stronger when I moved to, to the United States. Um, I actually moved to attend grad school in Rolla, Missouri. And um, in the church that I attended, it was an Assembly of God church. And it was similar to EBF, um, lots of college students. Um, and um, I met very good disciple makers, um, Sunday school teachers who took me under their wing and nurtured me um, in, the, in the word of God. And, um, and here I am today. Um, not trying to say I have reached the, uh, the finish line, but like Paul, I press on each day that uh, I will continue to possess um, that which Christ first possessed mm. me. Amen. It sounds like that was a, a pivotal moment when faith really became your own. God got a hold of you, and it's awesome to hear just the ways that he has been at work in your life, has shown you mercy. Any, any others that come to mind, ways that you've seen God at work in you, your family? Yeah. Um, so like I said, um, I didn't have really good reasons for, for being, a, being a believer, um, but now I find great joy when I, when I come to his presence. Whenever I come to his presence, whenever I sit under his feet, um, there's great joy, there's great peace. Um, it's not superficial reasons, it's just um, I, I'm more passionate for him and for his kingdom now, and I think it's, it's a great transformation. Amen. Amen. Well, so uh, as we are trying to get into the habit of doing, there is a, this, um, I don't know how to describe it, this statement based on 2 Corinthians 3, 3, that for each person that shares a testimony, we'd love to give, and then the response is a hearty, praise the Lord. So get that dialed up in your brain. As soon as this is over, we're going to say praise the Lord and pray for you. So do you mind? Yeah. Thank you. My life is like a living letter, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on a tablet of stone, but on the tablet of the human heart. Praise the Lord. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.